Well, it was just a few weeks ago we were celebrating Easter, and um, I don't know if any of you had this kind of conversation with people on, on Easter Sunday, but uh, I had it with two or three people that it was the first time it felt like COVID wasn't touching Easter. Now, I know it still lingers out there in places, but it, it, I didn't want to take it for granted. I just wanted to celebrate what felt like normal, and COVID was in our rearview mirror. Uh, but before we get too ahead of ourselves, uh, we know that from Scripture, there are times when God in His sovereignty allows certain things to happen. He, he, he ordains them even. And uh, these great trials that sometimes don't just affect one person, but they affect a whole community, in this case a pandemic. Uh, the problem with Israel was that they responded immediately in the midst of the crisis to God, but then they quickly forgot what God was doing through the crisis. And the pandemic is really, uh, from a biblical perspective, it was meant to expose us. It was meant to teach humanity something about humanity. It was never about the virus. From In the newspapers in heaven, I read them, in the newspapers in heaven, they weren't talking about viruses and vaccines and all the political trauma about it. They were just saying, will people realize what's going on? This is a moment of exposure. And one of the ways that uh, one philosopher put it sometime back is that we have a fragilized society. Now, that was true long before, by the way, uh, the pandemic. The pandemic just took the cover off what's already true of uh, humanity. And the way they describe this fragilized society is, first of all, uh, it's a society with no safety net. And by safety net, we don't mean a governmental welfare program. By safety net, we mean the traditional authoritative truck, the, the, the traditional trusted authoritative voices that hold a society together, namely the government, the extended family, and the church. Those safety nets are gone now. And something like uh, the pandemic just simply revealed that. Uh, they reveal that without those trusted authorities, you do not have a level of certainty necessary for a society to function. As one uh, other philosopher put it, we've discovered more and more over the last hundred years or so that we are a society without a meta-narrative. Fancy word, meta-narrative. It just simply means a big story that holds us together, that makes sense of life. And generally speaking, in the most broad sense, it's bigger than the Judeo-Christian story. It's the idea that um, life isn't about me, it's about us, it's about humanity. It's about the fact that this life is just a, a, a short period of our existence. Uh, there's another life that this life is preparing us for. And ultimately, we have some accountability to a God or gods outside of us. Those are sort of the, the generic pieces for a meta-narrative that, that is held by most cultures throughout most of history. But that is gone now, for the most part, in the West, so that we no longer can have conversations with other human beings about what's true. We can simply only have battles over emotional preferences. The other thing that uh, the, uh, the pandemic revealed, uh, something that was going on long before the pandemic and is even more true now, is that we are alone 
like never before in human civilization. Oh, even though we're all together in this room, we as individuals are living more alone than we ever have before in human civilization. There is enormous pressure when you think of these two things. There's no meta-narrative. Uh, there's no more safety net. Uh, you know, those traditional authorities that are trusted. We're alone like never before. And as a result, there's enormous pressure on every individual to figure out what their own meaningful reality is. And that's life crushing. Instead of being given your reality, instead of being given meaning, you are now forced to figure it out for yourself. And real relationships have been replaced with devices. Now those devices have convinced us that they can substitute for community or they can complement community. But what they do ultimately is they make us oblivious to the fact that they're reprogramming us to be hypersensitive, angry, and isolated. How's that for good news and a start for the service? And I know that uh, I've been accused of this before, of being provocative, of being an alarmist, and um, I continue to think this through, and there's just simply no way in my mind and in my lifetime to be able to say this in a way that isn't alarmist. You ought to be alarmed. Things are bad. Things are very, very bad. <laughs> However, there's hope because of Christ. There always is. I don't care what time period you grew up in, what culture, what your situation is, there's always hope because of Christ. And in contrast to this, this fragilized society and this anxiety-ruled neighborhood in which we live, in contrast to that is the local church. I really believe that we have a, a massive opportunity in the next generation, even in this generation, we have a massive opportunity to be a contrasting community to what's going on in our world. And that's really where Philippians has been taking us all along. Red Cedar can be this refuge of joy and peace. A community of exiles living very conscious that we're exiles, resisting the gravitational pull of this fragmented, fragilized world, and pulling together to be this place that is a radical contrast, a place of joy, that's what Philippians has been teaching us all along, and a place of peace. So let's take a look at our text and read it this morning. You have it in your bulletin if you don't have a Bible, but it's in Philippians 4. Beginning in uh, verse 4 from last week. Rejoice in the Lord and do it always. And if you didn't get it the first time, I'm going to tell you again, rejoice. Let your reasonableness or your gentleness be obvious to everyone, particularly in the local church community, the idea there is. Because the Lord is at hand. The Lord is coming. At any moment, he could walk through the door. At any moment, his kingdom could come, the thing that we pray for all the time. So don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, what is ever honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, 
if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things, what you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. So while Philippians has been talking about joy all along, we now come to this place of peace. And so they really do go together. And uh, that's something that, um, as you think about it, the difference between um, uh, peace and joy, you know, all these traditional symbols for peace. What, and, and just think about it for, for a moment. What do you think, I wonder, is the relationship between joy and peace? How are they related to one another? Uh, and while you deliberate on that, uh, I've already had, I've already seen the problem, and I've already been working on it during the week. So here's here's my suggestion, just a, just a suggestion. Uh, I've been saying all along. I still think this is a great definition of joy. Joy is confident anticipation. Confident anticipation. Uh, today we're going to talk about how you trade in anxiety for anticipation. So joy is this is is uh, this certainty about the future, whether the future is an hour away that you're scared or, or, or anxious about, or whether it's after you die. It's this confident in, uh, anticipation, this, this level of certainty that gets you through life in a fragile society. But joy is more the inner disposition, and then I would say peace is the outer expression of that. Joy is sort of the attitude of the heart, and peace is what it looks like on the outside. Uh, usually the best way to describe that is it's, it's a calm, but more specifically I would say it is a control over your emotions. It's not a suppression of your emotions. It's not a denial of your emotions. It's actually an understanding of your emotions that are channeled in the right way. And while all of these traditional symbols of peace are, are uh, familiar, I'm going to give you a different symbol today. When you think of peace, don't think of the dove and the sign. And, and your finger uh, signal there. I want you to think of the most flexible tree on the planet, a palm tree. This is the biblical picture here in Philippians of peace, and I think it's also the picture of peace that we see throughout uh, the Bible, this idea of shalom, of, of wholeness, of being so stabilized, so secure that the winds can beat against you, and you, you somehow just float and flex with it and stay stable. So that's the picture of peace in front of you. And then peace is described for us in some very helpful ways here in Philippians chapter 4. Did you notice, for example, that uh, in verse 7, it's the peace of God. And in verse 9, it's the God of peace. So you've got these two things going on here, of God and God of. And then if you notice again in verse 9, the God of peace will be with you. So when we put all those together... Peace is this experience of the presence of God. It's the, it's the presence of God experienced might be a better way of saying it. It's not the presence of God that's a fact. It's the, and that's why, for example, have you ever wondered this? When the Bible speaks about God being with you, and we think, well, wait a second. Isn't God always with you anyway? I mean, why do we even pray for people that God would be with them? When God's already with them, he's omnipresent, he's everywhere. When the Bible speaks about God being with us, he's not speaking about it as a fact, but as an experience. It's about experiencing the presence of, of God. It's not a state of mind you achieve through meditation, 
It's not a state of mind you achieve through a chemical substance. It's not a state of mind you achieve by going to your favorite vacation spot. It's something that you can experience simply by knowing the God of the Bible. And actually, it's going to go on to tell us how to experience that. But let me just keep describing it a little bit. The, this experience of peace is like the Jesus in the storm when he stands up and says, Hush, be still. And all the what-ifs that have captured our mind and heart just die away like the waves. It's that tightness of the chest that some of us experience that we've normalized and don't realize how unhealthy it is. Uh, peace is that ability to just completely uh, relax us in a way that our very body itself experiences. It's that stress that we deal with day in and day out, week in and week out, that has, over the course of years, changed us into someone we don't even recognize anymore. Peace has the power to come in and undo the years of damage that have happened to us by just simply continuing to process stress and never really dealing with it on a spiritual level. It's really the assuring, it's, it's this assuring presence, it's the three-year-old who who's uh, being held by uh, uh, her mother uh, in the midst of a crowd of people that she doesn't really know. Uh, it's, the, it's that professional expert who comes in when your sewer's backed up and you can't fix it. <laughs> Uh, it's the surgeon that says, I've done this very same surgery hundreds of times before, and your body just breathes a sense of sigh. All of that happens when we experience the presence of God. And that's why the other description here of peace is that it does something. Uh, it says here that it guards our hearts and mind in verse 7. Of course, from what is the question, right? Well, it guards it from anxiety, but what's that? Well, it's the need to control outcomes. That's one way of looking at it. We love to, you know, anxiety is this thing that we want. We're wondering what's going to happen. We've just got to find a way to fix this to try to control the outcomes. Another way I think of how it guards our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus is it protects us from the off-ramps where we start traveling down because our emotions or our wants are driving us. And all of a sudden, it seems, even though it happens over time, all of a sudden we are believing lies that at one time before we recognized as lies but no longer. When you're experiencing the presence of God, when peace is occupying you, it guards you from those off-ramps, which is why this is the kind of peace that surpasses understanding in verse 7. You really, when you see someone who's at peace with the Lord, it's, it's, it's as though they say to you, it's actually going to be all right. Because they've yielded to God who gets to define what the it is. <laughs> when I say it's going to be okay, it begs the question, well, what are you talking about? It, what's going to be okay? I've yielded God, whatever the outcome is, it's going to be okay because God gets to define the it. I mean, don't you want this? Don't, don't you want this peace? And if you're experiencing it, don't you want even more of it? And don't you want it for us as a local church family 
for a fragilized society that's ruled by anxiety like never before? Well, thankfully, there's a very practical way that we can get at this in the rest of these verses here. Uh, but I thought it might be a better idea to first tell you the wrong way to get at it. Now, only a few of you maybe know this scene. Um, you can still pull it up on YouTube. But um, So the old Bob Newhart show from a long time ago. Bob Newhart played a psychiatrist. And uh, in this scene, a woman comes to him and she's got a paranoia. And the paranoia is that she's afraid of being buried alive in a box. And so um, Newhart sits her down and says, um, all right, let me first of all tell you about my billing. Uh, I charge you uh, $5 for the first five minutes, and after that, it's free. She looks at him and says, wow, this is great. And he says, uh, and, and she said, then he goes on to say, well, and you won't even, we won't even need more than five minutes. So then he asks her to tell her uh, her problem, and he leans over and he says to her, some of you know this, right? Stop it! And as she kind of retells it again and again, he just tells her, stop it. You know, and so after a few minutes, he's, he's done. In fact, they, in fact, they only charged her $3. But um, <clears throat> Now, here's the thing about psychiatry and a lot of therapy. They can provide coping mechanisms. Some of those coping mechanisms are helpful to get through life. They could even trace problems back to the source a lot of times. And that can be informative. But these approaches have no room for the God of peace who controls all. So guess what? Whatever the solution in these situations, guess who has to get control? You do. And that's where the problem is. Legan Duncan has preached on Philippians, and at this point he was saying in Philippians 4, without Christ, you can't control what controls you. You can only switch it out for other idols, which is why we could just continue to, to treat symptoms and never really what those symptoms from the Lord are meant to point us to. So there are three helpful means here to trade in anxiety for anticipation. Praying, thinking, and uh, practicing. Very, these, these things fall out real simply in here. Verse 6, praying. Uh, verse 7, um, or verse 8, thinking. And then finally, verse 9, uh, practicing. Uh, and let me just say, uh, remind you of what's going on in this little town of Philippi, this Roman colony. Uh, these are not, this is the person writing Philippians isn't just kind of putting together a self-help book so they can turn a few bucks. Uh, think about this local church in Philippi. Their pastor, their founding pastor is in prison. He may lose his life. He's the one writing to them and telling them to rejoice in the Lord always. They're dealing with extreme poverty and they are frightened by opponents who are accusing them of being unpatriotic. And as a result, they're starting to turn in on each other from all of these external stresses. So we're not talking about anxiety in a vacuum, but in a very real gritty situation. And so we come to praying. And many of us read through the book uh, by Paul Miller, The Praying Life, earlier. And one of the things I remember from that book is he talked about prayer as an ongoing conversation with the Lord. You're just always kind of in this constant dialogue 
with the Father. That's why it says here, pray about everything. In everything by prayer and supplication. So it covers everything. It's just a constant conversation. Which then makes me ask, do you pray over decisions? Do you pray for gospel outcomes? Do you pray with thanksgiving? I chose decisions because decisions tend to create a lot of anxiety in people. Uh, the, they tend to be the place, and this is a little bit of an overgeneralization, but, but there's usually two types of decision makers. The people who are anxious about waiting, because they just decide right away, they just got to jump on it, or the moment might be lost. And those people who are anxious over whether they make a wrong decision. Sometimes in a marriage you have two different types, speaking hypothetically, of course. <laughs> and there is a great passage here. It's, in my mind, it's one of the most helpful passages in the Bible on anxiety and decision making. It's in Proverbs 16. If you want to find that, if you have a Bible near you, you can. If not, I'll just read a few of them, a few of these verses here. Uh, Proverbs 16 says, The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. So the first thing I notice here is that there's nothing wrong with planning. The idea that, oh, I shouldn't plan because, you know, God... God doesn't want me to plan because then, you know, then it's going to be my plan, not God's plan. The plans of the heart belong to man. But ultimately, what those plans are going to turn out belongs to the Lord. The Lord gets the final say in those plans. Second verse, all the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirit. So when I make a plan, I don't ultimately trust that plan because my, I don't trust my own abilities to make a good plan. I bring that before the Lord, which is why verse 3 says, commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. So in these three verses here, there are at least two principles for anxiety and decision making in just the first three verses of Proverbs 16. And that is the principle of deliberation and collaboration. You deliberate, you think about a plan, and then you collaborate with God to get his endorsement of that plan, to get his input on that plan, which is why you commit it to the Lord. And then in verses 4, 5, 6, and 7, and 8, there's all of these, these things that could throw your plan off. There are all these ways that things happen, and it seems like the wrong plan is unfolding, to which essentially if I had to put all of those four verses into one word, it would be, it would be this, it's abdication. So deliberation, collaboration, and abdication. You abdicate to the Lord. At the end of the day, I, the Lord gets to be God. And he's the one who gets to decide whether these plans come to fruition or not. I am not going to hold on to him, which is why it summarizes so perfectly in verse 9. And so think of this, whether you're thinking about marriage or a move or you're, you're thinking about some difficult situation, the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. So uh, Matt and Lauren Knapp and their kids are right now in Greenville, um, Tennessee. They're being interviewed by a church. And as we prayed for them and their next move, uh, the question is, you know, is, this, is that the best fit or should he go over here? It's really difficult. You know, you, there's nothing like deciding your future to remind you that you're not omniscient. 
Uh, and and so it's, it's always difficult to know when you're playing with people's lives like that and when they're trying to figure that out. But this is a beautiful verse. Plan your way, Matt. But know that the Lord ultimately is, is, is guiding your steps. At the end of the day, relax into it. Because the Lord is channeling all of your, even your bad decisions, and I've made some, uh, even those bad decisions, God has a way of sort of bending them in the back in the direction that he wants. So there's a beautiful thing here about just simply praying over all of your decisions and collaborating with the Lord. And then what about this idea of gospel uh, outcomes? What does that mean? Well, it just simply is a way of saying learn to attach Scripture if you can. This is going to take years to develop for sure, but learn to attach Scripture to a prayer request when you ask someone to pray for you. For that matter, even when you pray to God, try to attach a Scripture. And one of the great books that helps you with many examples of this, this is a book called Side by Side by Ed Welch. We read it a few years back. Let me just give you two examples here. He says, first of all, tell your burden. I have been so tired, I feel like I'm always a few steps behind on everything. Normally, we would stop right there. Oh, I'm just so tired. Pray for me. So he says, go on and attach a scripture. Would you pray that I rest in Jesus? The one who said, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. See how that, see how that changes? Here's another one. This is so hard. Would you pray for healing for my daughter? And we stop there. Then we attach a scripture. Would you also pray for perseverance and that I would be able to fix my eyes on things that are not seen? I've been so impatient with my kids recently. I need help. Would you pray that I will know Jesus' unlimited patience toward me so that I will pass that on to my children? It's such a small thing, but it is a profound thing which is why the next thing is also so helpful, thanksgiving. Last week I said, there's always cause for rejoicing. Well, if there's always cause for rejoicing, then by, by consequence, that means that all our prayers should be navigated by thanksgiving. So when our kids were growing up, they, they learned to pray like some of your kids probably do, or maybe you did as a kid. You heard other people pray. And so our kids got used to, every time they prayed, thank you, God, for this day. Those were the first words out of their mouth. Uh, after a while, I started wondering, do they even know what they're saying right now? But then I thought, wait, where do they learn that from? <laughs> so there really is something to genuinely and sincerely, not just saying it by way of some kind of rote thing, but what if genuine thanks always was the first thing out of our mouth in our prayer life? Before we ask God for anything, we thanked God for something. Paul, by the way, models that, doesn't he, in almost every single one of his letters. Without thanksgiving, our conversation with the Father is navigated not by thanksgiving, but by desperation or by demand um, or by some other kind of thing, some urgency. And as a result, there's no breathing room for anticipation. Thanksgiving forces us to pause. It forces us to pause and remind ourselves that we are receivers in life, not achievers. God owes me nothing, and I owe everything to God. I am a receiver, not an achiever. The other thing that Thanksgiving does is it reminds me that I'm incompetent, 
not competent, that I'm dependent, not independent. And it also reminds me that I'm part of a plan, not that I have a plan God must bless. That's what Thanksgiving does, the beautiful pause. So if prayer is a constant conversation then uh, with the Father, then I would say what thinking is in this case, thinking is simply uh, deliberately listening to the Father. Uh, you can't just have a conversation where you're just talking to him. You also have, a, have to have, have a conversation where you're listening uh, and, and deliberately listening. The Bible calls this meditation. I mean, there's just so many verses on this that we could talk about. Blessed is he who does not walk or stand or sit in the counsel of the wicked, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. It's not a duty as much as it's a delight. And because it's a delight, Morning and night, he's exposing himself to it. Proverbs 22 says, incline your ear, hear the words of the wise. You're not going to hear the words of the wise unless you incline your ear and apply your heart. And when you do, just like in Psalm 1, it will be pleasant to you. It'll, you'll, as you do that, you'll not only keep them with you, but it will be ready on your lips so that your trust will be in the Lord and not something else. That creates what? Anxiety. Or Ecclesiastes 12 is another one. These wise words that are summarized in Philippians 4, 8. These wise words do two things. They're like goads. They push you in the right direction. Sometimes a direction you don't want to go naturally. But they're also stability. They're like firmly fixed nails. And they're ultimately all given by one shepherd the Lord Jesus Christ. So beware of anything beyond these things, my son, because you'll easily fall prey to those things. So one simple application here is this. If you want to think, if you want these, uh, these, these concepts in verse 8, of what's honorable, what's true, what's pure, if you don't want to be ruled by what's fearful or by anger or by complaining, then you're going, to need, you're going to need to have to stuff, suffocate those things with other things that are praiseworthy. All the descriptors here in verse 8. And a little liturgy goes a long way. Uh, it is utterly impossible, especially today, if you do not have prioritized space to do some biblical thinking. Uh, if there's anything I say today, if there's only one thing I want you to hear, it's this. I know some of you, you're already on board with this. You're already in motion of this. Uh, you're so used to doing this that it would be like getting in a car without a seatbelt. You'd feel naked. This idea of just spending some time with the Lord. Uh, but I would just say it's amazing to me. It really is. I wish I could tell people this more and more. It is amazing to me what 15 minutes a day, even if it's just three or four days a week, can do for you over the long haul. A little liturgy goes a long way. 15 minutes of space, mostly in the morning when you're alert. I know some of you aren't, but for most of you, you are alert in the morning. When you can eat and chew. You need to have some method, not just to read the Bible passively, but to digest it. So share a thought from it. Uh, write something down. Don't just read your Bible and go on. Do something with it. Uh, record it and turn it into a prayer, even if it's just a one-minute exercise. Do something to digest that. Uh, think about things like when you're reading the Bible, what does it say about God's character, 
What does it say about the promise of the gospel? What does it say about the seriousness of sin? What does it say about your future? Those are simple ways to just extract more out of the Bible than just chicken soup for your soul. Um, And finally, uh, practicing, which in another word is really just discipleship. Look at the four words that Paul uses in verse 9. Learned. This assumes you're under regular teaching. Otherwise, how would you learn something? Received. This assumes you're not just under regular teaching, but you're actually responding to it. Megan said to, to me today, you didn't know I was going to do this, Megan. Uh, where are you, Megan? Uh, oh, she's good. She's not here. So, so Abe, it's, it, anyway, she was just joking about, uh, she was on the women's panel yesterday at the retreat, and she was asked to share something, and she said, I turned it into a sermon, and they fell asleep. And I said, I said oh, I, I know exactly how you feel. My goal every Sunday is to try to put at least two or three of you to sleep, and uh, it's one of the few goals I've achieved in life. But um, So received, learned, received, assumes that you're responding, uh, not necessarily in the church service itself. Uh, heard, uh, this assumes that your teachers have, your, have a reputation that they're practicing what they're preaching. Do you know that? Do you, do you know if the people preaching and teaching you here, me, in the small group? Do you actually know that they're actually practicing it? And then finally, you, they've seen this. Seen assumes they've seen how the how-to of what you're teaching, not just the what. I love the fact that a, a local church of Jesus Christ is a place where we mind each other's business. That's what small groups are. Uh, and, uh, and I was benefited just this week. Uh, I had a, uh, a miserable uh, 10 or 12 days from Easter till just about Thursday morning. Um, it actually began even before Easter, uh, and Kathy was the full brunt of that, nonstop tension with her uh, and things that I, I was doing, and it took me forever to realize how stuck I was in this ditch of pride. But you know the thing I'm most disappointed about? 24 hours before uh, the satanic attack was over, I finally asked the elder, uh, I asked two people to pray for me. Hmm, wonder what would happen if I'd done that early on. <laughs> we really need to mind each other's business or people are just going to go down. So, um, and by the way, I just would say this, maybe this summer is an opportunity for you in this area of discipleship to get some concentrated attention. Maybe there's some biblical counseling you need to participate in. Maybe you needed someone to coach you in how to access the Bible for a few weeks. Whatever it is, just put that on your radar and something to think about. Maybe the summer's a time for you to get some concentrated practicing going on. So praying, thinking, and practicing, that's how we trade in anxiety for anticipation. I want to go back to the text uh, that, um, uh, that Melanie read for us this morning. But first, I want to encourage our communion guys to come forward on the worship team. And like every Sunday, we invite any of you here who, uh, even as Abe prayed this morning, uh, any of you that know Jesus Christ, that call on him as, a, as your Savior, this table is open for you. This is the body and blood 
of Christ. And this is what unites us. And this is what gives us the hope that we can do something about our anxiety. In the passage of Luke 12 that was read to us this morning, there were just two verses that I want us to think about as we come to the table today. You saw in all of that passage there that God is the very best Father because He gives us the very best gifts, which is the Holy Spirit. God the Father doesn't always give us what we ask for, but He always gives us what we need. And in Luke 12, verses 29 through 32, anxiety always centers on something we want and something we desperately must have. Verse 29, do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the believers, all the unbelievers of the world, all the nations of the world, these are the things they seek after. But your Father actually knows what you need. Instead, don't get caught up in seeking your needs. Get caught up in seeking His kingdom. Because God, in verse 32, it's His absolute delight to give you what you need the most, the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And that's why he goes on to say in verse uh, 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 33, sell your possessions and give to the needy, provide for yourselves money bags, etc. So God is all about giving us this kingdom. And the problem is not that God doesn't provide our needs. The problem is confusion over what our needs are. God always gives us what we really need when we seek what really lasts. Now this side of home, anxiety is going to dog our trail all the way home. But because of Christ, because of the body and blood of Christ, anxiety won't win. And it won't wear down the Lord's commitment to make us beautiful people who will someday be free, as we sang about this morning, someday we'll be free from anxiety forever. So take a moment, and then I'll pray, and then you come. Father, no one knows our anxious heart like you do. Like little kids, we're so easily distracted and overwhelmed and distressed. But you did not leave us in this anxious world, in this anxious state forever. You sent your son, and his death frees us forever from that. And you secured for us a peace that surpasses understanding, that comes from a joy that looks toward the future with contented anticipation. May we come now and deposit our anxiety here and leave with that anticipation that Christ 